I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Janine Chastain. We're collaborating on curated conversations to explore how the industry of architecture is changing. Together, we'll find ways to create new solutions to current challenges while elevating the value of architects. Welcome to Practice Disrupted. Hello, listeners. Hello, Janine. Hi, Evelyn. Hi, Disruptors. In today's conversation, we've invited my colleagues from Slack to join us to revisit a conversation on the future of workplace culture. In season two, Helen Cup joined us to talk about how the workplace was shifting, especially during the pandemic. When we last spoke with Helen, we were still deep in the pandemic and not really sure about where things were heading. But we're at a different moment in time where there is less uncertainty, more optimism, albeit cautionary. The world has moved forward again, and lessons learned during the pandemic have shifted the way we're working. So we brought Helen back, as well as Chrissy, from the Future Forum. And the Future Forum is a consortium focused on building a way of working that is flexible, inclusive, and connected. Most importantly, it attracts and retains top talent. Many leaders in the AEC space want to know how to do this and increase diversity within their firms as well. So we're going to talk about all of that, how to engage people at work, and how to effectively build their practices by focusing on their most important assets, the people. These are all things that the Future Forum is looking at, and they are leading the conversation on reimagining how people, processes, and tools come together to make work better. They also recently published a new book, How the Future Works, leading flexible teams to do the best work of their lives. We'll be touching on this a bit during the episode, and I picked up this book earlier this summer, and it's been part of my summer reading list. So I'm very excited to dive into a lot of the lessons learned in their research. So we will drop that book in the show notes. I'm really super excited to jump into this discussion. And there is a lot to learn and a lot to cover. So welcome, Helen and Chrissy. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me back. We are so glad to have you back. We always open or start off each episode by asking our guests. I mean, we've obviously done a little bit of an introduction. Tell us about you, your role at the Future Forum, and then if you could cover a little bit more about what the Future Forum is doing right now, that would be great. Yeah, why don't I get started? So as you all know, if you've listened to the first episode, my name is Helen Cup, and I'm one of the co-founders of the Future Forum and one of the co-authors of our book, How the Future Works. And uh, just a little bit more about the Future Forum. So we're a research consortium um, that's backed by Slack and our founding partners, Boston Consulting Group, Miller Knoll, and Management Leadership for Tomorrow. And we're both a research consortium where we launch a quarterly survey around the future of work and knowledge workers, but we also engage in executive dialogue um, with Fortune 500 C-suite executives to figure out what they're doing um, with flexible work in their organizations. And I'd say it's been a really interesting journey over the last two and a half years as we've learned more, experimented more, and started to put down into paper, you know, what is working and what isn't. Um, And that's been really cool at Future Forum. Yeah. And I'm Chrissy Arnold. I'm the Director of Advisory Services for Future Forum. Uh, So I really focus on partnering with executives at Fortune 500 companies um, to 
you know, put into practice a lot of these things around flexible work? What does it look like on a day-to-day basis? What are the tools that you need to put in place? How do you operationalize this stuff? We have lots of believers and, and then a lot of questions about, okay, but what does it actually look like on the ground? On a personal note, I've been at Slack for the last seven years. And, you know, what really drew me to this work was my own experience as a leader at Slack and realizing that when I started to put tools like team level agreements into place with my team, it had a really transformative effect on our ability to work effectively and flexibly together. Uh, So that's me. I kind of want to just clarify quickly because I I know you both mentioned Slack and Future Forum. Just briefly, how do those two organizations work together or fit together? Yeah, so we're all um, employees of Slack. And um, at the very beginning, you know, many of us had different jobs. But when the pandemic hit, I think like so many other people, at first we were like, okay, just got to make it a couple weeks virtually with remote work. Then a couple weeks turned into a month, two months. And I think at some point, Brian, Sheila, and I, who are all co-founders of Future Forum, realized that it didn't matter if the pandemic was going to be over the next day. We had fundamentally shifted how we were all working. And I think all of our original expectations about office work, how work was getting done, how we could work together, that was thrown out the window. And so we started Future Forum within Slack. So Future Forum is sort of an organization within Slack. It's our research arm and dove into, at first, the data of you know, what was happening on the ground. And data turned into, well, this is interesting, but how do we make this work better? Um, which is what led to some of the executive conversations and workshops that Chrissy talked about. One of the things that people don't entirely realize about Slack is we were very much in spite of our product, which I think works well in a hybrid workplace and a remote workplace and a flexible workplace, we were very much an office-based company. So 5% of our employee base was office-based. Everyone had an assigned desk. Leadership at that time was very supportive of everyone coming in the office to get the work done. So even internally for us, this is a very big shift away from what how things were pre-pandemic. Now, a lot of our listeners work in companies that have very different culture than tech. So I thought maybe you could also give us a sense of what working for a company like Slack or Future Forum is like. How do you describe the culture? Yeah, I I love this question. I get asked it all the time uh, when I'm interviewing people uh, to come work at Slack. And the thing that it always comes down to for me is the people. You know, Slack is a very people first company and really takes the time to listen to people, uh, to be empathetic, to understand what people need. And when we look at what's effective sort of in this new world of flexible work, it's the exact same things. It's about people. It's about having empathy for, you know, what's working, what's not working, what are the challenges people are having. You know, beyond the the focus on people, dissatisfaction with the status quo really comes up. You know, Slack is always looking for better ways to do thing, whether do things, whether that's within the product or whether that's within, you know, how we work together. And that comes back to this sort of, you know, core behavior that we have around looking at things in a smart way and not as in sort of IQ, but looking for better ways to do things, looking at things sideways, being playful with the way we get work done. Uh, and I think those are all really key things to to keep in mind when we are looking to the future of work, especially. 
Yeah, I would add that when we when we think about flexible work, um, what we've seen in our work on Future Forum and in writing this book is that those who are innovating and those who are forward thinking in how they're you know implementing flexible work are not just tech companies. Actually, if you look in the book, a lot of the examples are from companies um, that you wouldn't expect, like the Royal Bank of Canada for example. It's less about being in tech and that culture, and it's more around your ability to enable experimentation, to be agile, and a willingness to be vulnerable and say, we don't know the right answer yet. We don't have the blueprint, but we're willing to try and see if this works. We listen to our people and move forward from there one step at a time. That, I think, is more important than, you know, other aspects of culture that we typically associate that word with. But I'll also add something about Slack that comes up a lot in terms of culture and people first that I have always loved and I keep hearing when new people onboard is um, there is a slide in new hire onboarding at the very end of, I think, day one orientation where you end the day and it just says, you belong here. And in many ways, it's just so powerful for people to see that and for a company to say that and focus on like their people um, and to acknowledge that they belong here and build that empathy. So that is a good Slack example that I feel like has been very powerful for the last six years that I've been here. So one of the most, I think, impressive things about the research that that Future Forum is doing are these pulse surveys that come out quarterly. Is that correct? It comes out quarterly. Yep. So what's great about the pulse survey, and I'll let Helen and Chrissy talk a little bit more about it, of course, is that it is, it, it's, it's a quarterly survey that's like literally taken the pulse on what knowledge workers have felt about where they are currently over the course of the pandemic and how that has evolved and how that has changed. That's super high level from somebody unaffiliated with the Future Forum describing that. But I don't know if one of you wants to go a little bit deeper into describing what the Pulse survey is, and then also maybe each of you can chime in on you know what has come out of that research and what is the most surprising statistic uh, or something that you found surprising and unexpected. Evelyn, you're not totally unaffiliated with Future Forum and the data and the pulse, for what it's worth, for our readers. Uh, we pull a lot of Evelyn's expertise in thinking about space um, and space in a new way for future of work. But what you said is true. So the Future Forum Pulse is a quarterly survey of knowledge workers all around the world. We survey over 10,000 knowledge workers every quarter. The big thing we do is we ask a lot about how you know their employee preferences for flexible work and for work in general is shifting. But it's also an opportunity for us to look at what sort of practices um, are and are not working. We, we try to understand different factors of work, like sense of belonging, productivity, satisfaction with your overall work environment. And we look at how different you know, aspects of work, different practices shift and change um, how employees are experiencing some of those factors. So for example, like more flexibility tends to improve 
you know, all dimensions of the work factors like productivity, focus, um, and sense of belonging even. Um, and so the pulse has been really powerful in us just digging deeper around flexible work and understanding what is and isn't working. I will say the, the single most surprising thing for me that came out early in our research and our data is that you know most of the conversation even now around flexible work tends to be oriented around flexible location so work from home versus work from the office but our data shows that while that's important over 3 quarters of people want flexible location almost everyone wants flexibility in their schedules. So time matters more than place. And when you think about it, I think that's a little bit more obvious than I would have uh, I would have originally thought because if you're working from the office or from the home, if you're in meetings nine to five back to back every single day, that's not the flexibility that you want. And it actually doesn't matter if you're working from a coffee shop or your house, you still feel not in control of your time and your work. Uh, And what people are looking for is just a lot more autonomy over their day. And so flexible schedules points to that. Um, How do you give people more focused time, more ability to you know, take control of their day, do things that they need to, like drop the kids off um, or, you know, integrate some of a better balance with work and life, get things done and still collaborate with their colleagues. And how, so that's always been sort of surprising and one of the biggest findings, I think, from our research. Yeah. You know, for me, when I think about it, this notion of sense of belonging uh, often gets conflated as well with sort of culture within an organization, it's really top of mind for people right now. And there's this concern out there that, oh, people are going to experience less sense of belonging with our company if we're not together in an office. I think the most surprising thing for me has been that the data has actually dictated the opposite. You know, that sense of belonging for all groups has increased over the course of the pandemic, uh, particularly so for Black, Hispanic, and Asian American employees. You know, early in the pandemic, when we started to see trends around that, we were quite surprised by it. And we went to um, Brian Lowry, who's a professor at Stanford, to ask, you know, what was up with this? What, why are we seeing these trends? And he actually wasn't surprised at all. He said, well, of course, you know, there's, there's no need to code switch. We've talked about this as like the psychological commute into the office. What's required of you to change from, you know, your home environment where you're comfortable, where you're able to work as you are and fit into a different environment um, that maybe feels less at home to you. Beyond that, I think about it for myself as, you know, a working parent. I feel a much greater sense of belonging with my team because we're intentional about the time we spend together. I no longer have to, you know, go into the office and rush to get out to pick up my kids, miss out on happy hours, miss out on the social events where people are building that sense of connection. Uh, so, you know, since having children, my sense of belonging not being in the office is much greater with my team. Uh, and certainly that that is contradictory to sort of what people assume would be the case as we're not in offices as much. So one question we had was really around the idea of, is this an industry-specific challenge that architects are facing, 
Or is this something broader going on within the way we think about work? You know, when we started this podcast, I do think that Evelyn and I were thinking a lot of these issues were specific to architecture as a practice. But I think the more and more conversations that we're having, we're realizing that other industries are experiencing some of this too. So I wanted to get your take since Slack and Future Forum cuts across industries. It's not, you guys are looking at all different types of work. Um, What is your take on major themes that run across everything? In the data, there is just a broad desire for flexibility as as table stakes for everybody. So, you know, across all sectors, across all ages, across all levels of management functions within an organization, everybody wants flexibility. There's some variation um, within those groups in terms of, you know, whether people want to be more like full time at home versus in the office, but it's not meaningful. Uh, And that's often surprising to people. You know, you hear people say younger workers want to be in the office more to sort of build their careers and older folks are used to being in the office and they want to be in the office more. And and the fact is that everybody wants flexibility to almost the same degree. And it's especially important when people think about staying within a company, you know, desire to leave the company or look for a new job. uh, If you're dissatisfied with your current levels of flexibility, you're three times more likely to definitely be looking for a new job within the next year. So this stuff really matters and and people should be taking it seriously. I want to also talk about like the myths of returning to uh, to the office. It's funny because I was just on LinkedIn the other day and I saw like this push and pull argument going on between the two extremes of the people that are like all remote, all digital. And then uh, the opposition was saying, no, we got to get back into the office, which is amazing to me that we're like still, we're still thinking of it from like an either or standpoint. So I wanted to ask like in the data, what are the myths Um, about returning to office? What have you guys learned? So many myths that we've honestly debunked over the last two and a half years, right? Um, But you're right. I feel like the conversation in the media tends to be too black and white, um, where it's either or. Um, And one of the things that we often say is that digital first doesn't mean never in the office. And what people are looking for is a balance, as well as what they're really looking for when they say they want flexibility is autonomy and trust, right? That's ultimately what it comes down to. And so part of, I think, what we're seeing in the media and the backlash of RTO mandates and all that is a bit of that. Chrissy already talked about the myth around sense of belonging, that you need the office to build culture and a sense of belonging and um, those sort of relationships. I think the other prevalent myth that we continue to hear is that, you know, maybe you can be productive when you work from home, but you need the office to innovate. Um, You need it to be creative and have those serendipitous conversations in the hallway. And not only does the data, does our data not support this, um, there's actually been decades of research in the past that say, you know, Things like brainstorming in a room together actually doesn't generate the best ideas. Um, There's a higher chance you get groupthink, and oftentimes less voices are being heard or included in the discussion. And the reality is what we find is that we should be thinking about things like brainwriting over brainstorming. So how do you 
mix in some asynchronous ideation beforehand where people can jot down different ideas, whether in a Google Doc or on Post-its like me, because I'm more traditional and pen paper, um, and bring that into a you know shorter meeting where you can actually focus on discussion and debating of ideas. Um, that tends to be much better for coming up with really great ideas, as well as ideas that you wouldn't typically have generated together. Um, and so I think that that is one of those things where is a very, uh, I would say, nostalgic myth of the office. Um, but research in the past outside of our own doesn't support that. And when we look at the data at Future Forum, we see that location doesn't impact how people are feeling in terms of creativity. What matters is psychological safety. So the ability, how they feel about you know, whether they can take risks as a team um, and whether they are able to ask for help across their team, those are the factors that really impact how creative a team can be. Um, and that that is agnostic of being in the same location or being in the office. That notion on psychological um, safety is kind of really interesting at this point of time, especially for architecture firms. So you two aren't probably aware, but just recently, the first union in a private architecture firm of 22 was formed in New York. So there's been a lot of talk about the need to, from the bottom up, to kind of transform a culture, not only in the workplace, but in the studio environment. And I think so much of what that ties back to is actually having psychological safety within the workplace. And it's interesting to me to hear about all of these firm owners that are pushing people back to the physical workplace, saying like, that's the only way we can innovate. That's the only way we can sit around and talk about design and charrette, where like the key component is not necessarily place-based. I think architects also like everything to be place-based because we are architects, but um but it's really about creating that psychological safety, which which is something that I don't feel like architects think about enough when it comes to what's going on in their practice and what's going on in their firm. And, and especially as a mechanism of like enabling people to be more productive by feeling psychologically safe. Yeah. I mean, I will tell you, um, I am your classic introvert, despite what I do <laughs> with podcasting and future forum. Um, I'm very, very introverted. And I can tell you that for the most part, you know, being in a room and trying to uh, get in a comment when there's a lot of talk and discussion and overlapping voices happening, it's hard. And I have found that when I have mentored other introverts as well, that's one of the things that really prevents us from chiming in with, you know, our ideas, whether half-baked or even just a, a thought. You, it, it works much better for introverts generally if there's an opportunity to, like, write something down in advance, prep, and submit that idea. Even just the act of, like, writing on a and post it and putting it somewhere is better. And so I think we hold on to this nostalgia of, you know, what it looks like to be creative in the past without thinking about 
what formats and, you know, how to solicit voices in a way that everyone feels comfortable to contribute. And I think when you get more people contributing, you do get better ideas. And that's just the reality of it. And I like I think what you're speaking to there, Helen, is, you know, we often almost frame the current moment as like, oh, we have to make it work in a different environment. We have to make the way we work together um, shift sort of over to digital first. But ultimately, like this is an opportunity to really radically reimagine how people are working together and to look at the practices that we came to take for granted and say, okay, who was that serving and who wasn't it? Is it serving our team in the way we want it to? So how do we, you know, really use this moment to take a hard look (laughs) at the things that we've taken for granted for a long time? Taken for granted or just made the assumption that it, it worked without saying, did it really work? Yeah, definitely. So I always found myself in conversations, especially in architecture firms, as like the lone extrovert, a lot of introverts. So it's it's pushed me into a direction of studying introverts to understand the way that they make decisions and what they need and how they communicate. And I'll say as an extrovert, I used to misunderstand the silence as non-participation and didn't understand that that's not what was happening, you know, because I was always like, who's the loudest voice in the room? I'm going to jump in. I'm going to rumble and make sure that I get my voice in there too, which came naturally for me. But then I learned that there's a lot of things that introverts need too. And if our extroverted voices just continuously crowd them out, then we don't leave enough space for them at the table which is why redesigning some of the forums and the way you communicate with your team is so important to create better balance. Yeah, and we're, we're right now we're talking about one dimension, right, of personality, which is introversion and extroversion. But think about neurodiversity. Um, think about just the context that everyone brings outside of the workplace and how that impacts how they show up and what they need. I think it. you're right. We're introversion, extroversion is an easy one um, that are broad buckets to kind of address, but each individual brings to the table different needs um, and the best ways in which they work. And it's an opportunity for us to say, how can we make it so that we are pulling the best out of everyone? And I think that comes back to all of these initiatives around diversity and equity and inclusion too, right? Because as you begin to add more diverse individuals to your organization, your business, that means that you're going to be dealing with added complexities of how information sinks in, how they process information, and then kind of how they report out as well. So we covered a lot around flexibility. And actually, you know, one of my pet peeves is when organizations tend to stop their return to work conversation with how many days we're going to be in the office. So I'm trying to sit here as a listener to the podcast and they're like, okay, well, people want flexibility, but does that mean unlimited flexibility? Like, like how, how do we truly make flexibility work in a way that's meaningful to the organization? Yeah. You know, most people don't want unlimited flexibility, whether that's about 
location flexibility, whether that's about schedule flexibility. What they want is flexibility within a framework. They're looking for predictability so that they know, you know, when am I expected to be where? Uh, and then how do I maintain autonomy over the rest of my time? So, you know, there's sort of two elements here, I would say. On, on the location side, we said it before, digital first doesn't mean never in person. But if we're going to come together, we need to have a purpose for gathering. It doesn't make sense to arbitrarily say we need to be together two days a week in the office and then to go in, spend all that extra time commuting and spend the whole day sitting on Zoom. Like that's really frustrating for employees. I had the experience recently where I chose to go into an office and, you know, I burned an hour and a half on the commute each way and 30 or $50 for parking downtown. And, you know, I was there because I wanted to be. And I thought, wow, if I was forced to be here, that would be so frustrating. So really thinking about what's the purpose for us coming together if we're going to do that? And what are you going to get out of it? And then on the schedule flexibility side, you know, one of the tools that that we found really effective comes from Dropbox, actually, this idea of core collaboration hours. So what are the hours that you're expected to be available for synchronous work with your team within the day? And sort of where can we have that sort of more bursty conversation where, you know, we might come up with new ideas, we can build off one another. And then the rest of the time when I'm not expected to be there, when my team doesn't have that expectation is mine. And so if I want to work after the kids go to bed at night, that's fine. I'm not letting anybody else down. If I want to take my dog for a walk during the day, that's fine. So this notion of what are the hours that we are all going to agree to work uh, together? For us, we do 9am to 1pm. We've got people on the East Coast on our team. So I know that those are the hours I need to be available for meeting. I want to be responding more quickly in Slack. And then the rest of my time is mine. Helen, what would you add there? That core collaboration hours is not your work day, is not nine to five. Um, I think that that is an important point <laughs> for us to say, remember. Yeah. Organizations are going to be like, okay, core collaboration, nine to five. <laughs> no, no, no. Because the, the research also shows that teams are better when they're bursty together, right? So that when they have this a smaller amount of time where they can have, you know, live synchronous collaboration, really quick back and forth for feedback, paired with more focused time, silent time, where you're not connecting with your team on a like continuous basis. And the nine to five workday is not structured to do that, right? You're like sort of expected to be on and available for eight hours a day or more for some of us who work longer hours. Instead, it's just saying, okay, you have you have focus time and you have synchronous time, and that synchronous time is not nine to five. You can decide. What we see is uh, a three to four hour block per day is pretty good because then you get you know variety and discussion, ability to schedule meetings and all that. But it's it's not the same as your full work day. I want to dive further into this because this actually came up on a call that I had today and something that I'm prepping for the need for focus time and how do you protect, like, how do you build consensus around focus time on a group or a team dynamic? And then how do you protect focus time from all those like avalanche meetings that end up inevitably like, oh, maybe, you know, I do have free time. Maybe I should put it, take this meeting during that time. Like, what, what are some quick tips you can share with our audience? You know, I think 
ultimately where this stuff works is when there is agreement within the group about what's expected and what we're going to try. And coming back to Helen's earlier points, this is about experimentation. You know, you don't have to put something in place and say, this is how we're always going to do it. But we use a tool called team level agreements. We found them to be really effective at, you know, brokering a conversation within your team to say, what are the norms around working that we are going to explicitly agree to? And it forces you to take pen to paper and say, well, what are we currently doing? So things like, what are your core collaboration hours? Or things like, you know, what do we use meetings for? What's expected of a meeting owner? You know, we take it a step further at Slack, and we've been doing this for a while now, but we've actually implemented two you know, company-wide programs. Uh, so we have a Focus Fridays program, and the expectation is that on Fridays, there are no internal meetings at Slack. And you know, at different levels of the organization, this might look different. Um, of course, if you're a senior executive and you need to have an important meeting, that's okay. But as a general rule, uh, we do our best not to schedule internal meetings. We do our best to give frontline managers and individual contributors that time to really put their heads down and focus. So that's Focus Fridays. And then we have a program uh, across Slack and Salesforce called Async Weeks or Maker Weeks. And so these are weeks where we do our best to cancel all recurring meetings. One-on-ones with your manager, you have an option about whether you want to keep those or not. But sort of that weekly team meeting, take it off the calendar for a week. See if you really need it. See if it's providing value to you. It's just a really good chance to kind of audit your schedule and think about, is this working? Um, so those are two programs we've tried. And again, they might change, right? This is all an iterative process. And, and we make sure that we're taking pulse surveys on these programs to see, are they having the impact that we want them to have for our employees? And where can we improve? Where can we change? Yeah, the reality is that meetings um, are a habit, and in many ways, a bad habit. And meeting creep happens all the time, even with us. And so the ability to just say, let's audit Let's cancel all meetings for a week and see, you know, go meeting, uh, declare meeting bankruptcy and say, do we, did we actually need these? Because if they were important and urgent, it will make its way back on the calendar. Trust me, it will. And so I, I, I think that's the theme of a lot of what we're talking about, you know, with team level agreements, with some of these programs around meetings. It's just a chance to pause and say, is this still working Let's actually evaluate and have that conversation and what can we experiment with and change. The thing that I often like to say about team level agreements is that, you know, it's a it's an interesting tool because it's so simple and its simplicity is in that there are so many invisible norms that exist in the workplace with with and with your team and with other people. Um, and for so long, we've just operated as if that was normal. And once we write it down, it's an opportunity to actually ask ourselves, is this norm actually working for all of us? Because the fact is, we never questioned it when it wasn't written down, right? It, when it's an invisible norm, you actually never take a step back and say, this is still working. But the act of writing it down gives you this chance to redesign and rethink it. Um, and so th those are really great ways to using the team level agreements, using some of these like meeting bankruptcy programs to say what what is and isn't working for us. The invisible norms is an interesting 
way to approach things because as a new employee too, I think it takes you time to learn those invisible norms, right? Within within the culture. So just having them actually written and documented makes it kind of easier to understand how understand the team dynamics and understand if I need help this is what I need to do to get immediate support. Um, if it's something that like can wait 24 hours, this is kind of how I reach out to my team members. Hey, Evelyn, I love that, especially as we're talking about distri- more distributed work and hybrid work, because when you were in the office, one of the things that you could do was kind of observe the people around you and figure out what those norms were. And that's something that is, you know, fundamentally quite different when you're sitting at home in front of your computer all day. And so how do you make things as explicit as possible for your employees? So they're not wasting energy guessing like, is it okay for me to miss this meeting? Is it okay for me to, you know, reach out to this person? And they can actually focus their energy on getting good work done. Uh, so I think it just becomes like even more important to document explicitly when we're not together. So one of the other myths that I feel not only architects are facing, but a lot of, I just read a New York Times article about um, how you mentor the young individuals coming into the office, that it has to be done in an office. That's the only way they can pick up on our culture. That's the only way we can hold their hand going forward so they understand what we're like and how we work with. Is there anything that we haven't necessarily talked about yet that can help with bringing in those younger individuals into a more flexible workplace. Yeah, and you know, I think a lot about again back to what are sort of the informal ways that people have learned on the job in the past and what were we kind of relying on the shared space in the office to do for us instead of intentionally designing. So, you know, one example might be like a, a sales rep who is on a client call and has a peer on that call with them, you know, after you got off the call with the customer, if you were sitting together uh, in the office, you would have time to informally debrief to like, get feedback on how that went to sort of take a breath together uh, and look for opportunities to improve. If you're not together in that shared space, you have to be intentional. You know, we work in Slack, so there's the Slack huddles feature. Uh, and one of our best practices is after we get off a client call, uh, we jump on a huddle for five minutes. It's not a 30-minute meeting. It doesn't have to be on the calendar. It's a chance to informally check in and give a little bit of feedback. And, you know, if it didn't go well, take a breath and be like, it's okay. You're not alone. You're going to do great next time, right? So I think with especially newer employees, really being intentional about making sure those moments can happen, those on-the-job learning moments is is critical to success here. A lot of what you're talking about, I think, demands leader like support from leadership, but it also relies heavily on kind of the middle manager to implement and to execute. What are suggestions there? And, you know, what, you know, to what extent are you seeing uh, organizations kind of upskilling or retraining those middle managers to manage in this new way of working? I think that more organizations need to be doing more to support their middle managers. Middle managers as a group, even pre-pandemic, were under-supported in terms of when you think about like what are the expectations of the job and what's the right training, what's the right support from a peer perspective um, to really shine as a manager. And this is especially true because over the last decade, right, the, the role of a manager has shifted 
so much and even more so during the pandemic um, from the traditional, you know, role of gatekeeper, task tracker, you know, delegating work to being more of that sort of empathetic coach and leader. And we just haven't, we haven't helped enough people make that transition. You go from being great at your job to now having to like help your team build connection, build relationships, navigate things that are happening in the world in terms of our society, the news, et cetera, and, you know, helping to manage a distributed team and having people build that autonomy and flexibility. Like those jobs are fundamentally different. And you're right. The, the frontline manager in particular, they're the linchpins of flexible work, right? If you think about it, they're the individuals that connect their team to the rest of the organization, to information, to opportunity, to other people and access. And so one of the, I, I'd say one of the frameworks that we talk about in the book um, that we that comes from our own updated manager training program at Slack is um, that managers have sort of three core roles that I think are are new and in many ways not new. Um, and that is to create clarity, to inspire trust, and to unlock potential. Um, and you'll see none of that is about monitoring or making sure that your employees are working from nine to five or 40 hours a week. It's really about things that we've talked about, right? Trust, how you um, give people the agency to work the best way that they need. Um, how do you unlock their potential? How do you create psychological safety? Those are all, I think, within those buckets of creating clarity on a team with things like agreements, inspiring trust, um, and and trying to find ways to bring those diverse voices to the table and unlocking potential. Um, and that's just, you know, across the board, more support for middle managers are, is needed and more upskilling and training. So Helen, really quickly, what's next for the Future Forum and you? Future Forum is going to continue to do research. I think we're grounded in data. Um, but one of the things that I'm really excited about is just diving in with more companies um, and understanding what companies and leaders are experimenting with and seeing in the field um, and pulling just more stories and examples to share with our community. Um, and so that, to me, is probably the most exciting thing over the next year. And who knows? Maybe another book? Maybe? <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Chrissy, same question to you, especially since Helen mentioned, you know, working with working a lot more with companies. And I, I feel like when it comes to advisory services, this is also critical to your role, um, the future form. For us, I, I think there's two pieces. One is supporting people as they try to make this work. The the future I want to see is that people have access to the resources they need to give people um, the flexibility that's going to let them live their best lives and do their best work. Right. And, you know, it's kind of a desert out there in terms of stories of actually like what are people trying? What are they um, doing on a day to day basis to make this real? And so being sort of the people who can can share those tactics and can say, here's something you can try. And here's a framework um, from which to think about this. And 
as we start to get deeper with what are the real challenges that people on the ground are seeing so that we're not just hearing an executive conversation, we're understanding, you know, what are people um, that are going to work every day experiencing? Uh, what does the data tell us on one side? And then what, what does it look like on the ground? And so, yeah, we, we will continue to listen and to, you know, hear what the challenges really are right now. The ones that are emerging are around things like team level agreements, around things like meeting culture. And then how do we build the sense of, of connection when we aren't together? Uh, so those are our focus areas at the moment. And I'm sure more will emerge as we get further uh, into this. So I, I just want to ask, Evelyn just changed her role at Slack and, and she's taking on a new role. I was hoping that you all could explain it to our audience who is a bunch of architects who don't know anything about Slack, but are very curious, like what, what is her role and what is she doing? Can you help us understand this? When we see companies be really successful with flexible work, it's when they're investing in it and when they're putting people in positions to really think about um, flexible work programmatically from what's the role of the office to what's our digital infrastructure that we need to collaborate to questions of how are we going to bring people together and where. And so having strategic leadership that has sort of the ear of the executive team to say, well, here's where we need to make investments. And these are the people that I need. And these are the programs that I want to roll out. That's that's ultimately how we're going to continue with this experimentation and and to be successful. And so that's what that's what Evelyn's going to be charged with is is sort of figuring that all out. I mean, she brings so much expertise, obviously, from the architectural space and from understanding space and design um, and also just experience design. And how do people work together and what do they need to sort of collaborate most effectively? So I'm super excited to have her in that role and to see uh, where we take this next at Slack and what the next sort of set of experiments are going to be. I'm really glad you touched on how her identity as an architect is helping Slack because that's something that we are trying to take back to our listeners also to understand that um, that architecture, while a very focused topic, has potential to influence things like the technology industry, like workplace strategy, and um, that there is a lot of synergy between those different disciplines that we can learn from each other and inform each other's work based on our point of view. The easiest way I've described my role is that, and we mentioned this at the top of the podcast, Slack is very much uh, organization in transformation through the pandemic as well. Um, so a future forum is the body that is gathering all of this great information. Then I feel like my role uh, or, you know, a large part of my role is taking the future forums research and implementing it within Slack, the company. So it's cross-functional. My role has always been cross-functional, but it is really understanding people, leaders' needs, understanding the executive leaders' needs, but then also understanding the needs of our employees and helping them meet in the middle so that everyone can is one First and foremost, happy, productive. They love being at and working together at Slack. And that includes kind of a reimagination of, of what the office means to us. We've mentioned it multiple times that digital first doesn't mean never in person, but we also mentioned that we we want to only have meetings that matter, especially if that means asking people to commute all the way into the office, and especially if that means asking people to fly right? And spend time with us in San Francisco overnight or in any and one of our 
a number of other offices where Salesforce is located. So, so all of that, um, up, up, helping up-level our managers, helping design meetings and on like, you know, the offsite is a new onsite, helping design meaningful onsites. So people don't leave meetings saying, oh, I could have just done that from home at Zoom. I feel like that's like the absolute worst feeling after <laughs> being called into the office. So um, yeah, that's my norm. With that idea in mind, I'm going to ask you both this like final closer question, which is about the fact that we're talking about a lot of change. And Evelyn, you mentioned implementation. So how are you both finding balance in implementing a lot of the changes that you're describing through this research and new ways of working while still getting work done? When you guys hit barriers, how do you keep moving forward? And like, what tips can you leave with our listeners? One of the things about having worked at Slack for seven years in a rapidly scaling organization is everything changes every month, right? You just, you can't grow to attach to the way things are because you know that it's going to change. And that's been a real gift for me moving from, I've worked in nonprofit leadership prior to being in the technology industry. So I think it's about non-attachment, right? At the end of the day, it's about really taking a hard look at, how we're doing and whether something's working. And just because it worked two months ago, doesn't mean that it's still working now. And that's not a bad thing. And so for me, I think it's it's really a perspective thing and a welcoming of change and making sure that you're not changing things for the sake of it. It's not to sort of feign this idea of movement instead of progress, but to really say, okay, well, what's going to serve us right now? And it's okay for it to be different than what it was in the past. Well, I have been looking forward to this conversation for a while, and I'm so glad that we had it. I want to remind everybody to check out the book, How the Future Works, Leading Flexible Teams to Do the Best Work of Their Lives. The link is in the show notes, and I highly encourage you to buy the book and read it because there's a lot of really good ideas in there about how to shift the way that we're working, and you can take them back to your team. So with that, thank you so much to Helen and Chrissy and Evelyn. Thanks for letting me turn the interview on you also. <laughs> Hi, Disruptors. If you like the content from today's show, you can find all of our past episodes over on practiceofarchitecture.com slash podcast. Be a part of the conversation by joining us, our speakers, and others in our community at practiceofarchitecture.com slash community. Our social media handle is at practice of arch. That's at practice of A-R-C-H. We love to hear from you. Drop us a note to say hello. This show is part of Gable Media. You can learn more about other podcasts and video channels in our community by visiting gablmedia.com. Thank you for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by Practice of Architecture. Tune in next week for a new conversation on change in the profession.